1: Hello everybody, and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me as always is my good friend, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Fantastic, Mark. How are you? I'm well. I'm very well. I have some important updates. I was afraid for a moment, contra our brand, that we might have to rename ourselves to periodically inaccurate about games. Because it's been a while since we've had any corrections. It's true. And uh, it's thus with great joy that I'm able to announce some corrections building up from the past couple of weeks. Of course, helpfully pointed out by our dear and loyal listeners, whom we love. One of them is that uh, apparently Warhammer 40k 9th edition is not, at this point, planning to obsolete any old codices. I made a crack about how you'd have to rebuy all your codices. All you have to do is just rebuy all the rule books. So, of course, it'll be nice and cheap. They always say that, and then they start putting out the codices. I know. Oh, again. Okay. Your cynicism is very appropriate. Well, of course, they're going to be updating the codices eventually, but the plan isn't, the plan as stated currently is that they will not immediately obsolete all the old ones. We'll see what happens. Another thing is that I made an offhand comment in our discussion about awards that my favorite movie of the year almost never lined up with, say, the Academy Academy of the War, uh, Academy Award, but I forgot that even last year, my favorite movie of the year was Parasite, which won the Academy Award for Best Picture, so minor addendum there, very not important. Now, more saliently here, uh, David Thompson, the designer of Andante Normandy, reached out about my comments about the U.S. Army not being integrated in 1944 or 45, or indeed at any point during the Second World War. And although it is absolutely the case that the American army was not integrated as a policy, they still had all the same racist segregationist policies that the American military had up until well after the war, there were some units that were white units that had black platoons in them. So in that sense, if you want to call those integrated units, there were some integrated units over the context of the war. Now, the 30th Infantry Division, which is what is featured in Undaunted Normandy, was not one of them. So my overall argument, there ought to have been a designer's note to that effect, still stands. And we still applaud the inclusion of black soldiers in Undaunted Normandy, because I don't think that historicity should stand in the way of representation in this context, but... Broader context is exactly what you want designer's notes to do. So those are the updates that we have. We thank everyone for sending in the corrections, and so we can remain so very wrong. But having cleared the slate, that's what I have to say about bringing the record up to date. So this is a board gaming podcast about board games. I probably should have mentioned that at some point. And first, we're going to talk about the game we reviewed
2: last year. Then we're going to talk about games we played this week. Then the news and why it doesn't matter. And then our topic of the week, which is multiple paths to victory. Oh, I
1: prepared multiple paths to victory. Oh, you're going to talk about paths? Yes. I only, I only have notes here about paths. I have some garden paths. Oh, I have garden paths. Oh. oh, this is going to be a problem.
2: Yeah, this is this is issues.
1: Okay, well, what did we review last
2: year, Walker? We reviewed a game called New Frontiers by Rio Grande Games, designed by Thomas Lehman. I Mark, have not played or thought about this game since. And Mark, I have to be honest. I looked at the list, and I saw New Frontiers, and I had to look it up.
1: Yeah. It's not a very good title, <laughs> is it? No. I, I got all
2: these different games in my head, and I said, no, we we haven't reviewed any of those, so I actually had to physically type it in and say, oh, yes, it's that other Role for the Galaxy game that sort of incorpor- incorporates all the sort of, you know, different rules from different systems, and, and they made an actual board game as opposed to a dice game or a card game. They made... What, well, it, what could be considered a actual board game?
1: Well, as we come into the time, it's the development cycle come full circle, right? There was Puerto Rico, and then Race for the Galaxy was originally kind of sort of almost supposed to be Puerto Rico the card game, and then it wasn't. And so this is kind of sort of Puerto Rico 2.0 or Race for the Galaxy the board game, depending on how you want to slice it. But honestly... Although it's functional and mechanically decent, you and I have uh, – well, you especially have been having kind of a renaissance with Race of the Galaxy, which is an absolute past-mastered tableau builder. And, I mean, given that, and given that New Frontiers especially fails on the role selection as far as I was concerned, I mean, I, I saw it played once. Over the course of the past year, I saw it played once in the wild, and I'm like, eh, more power to you. Yeah, I remember being fine. Not yeah, it's overly fine. exciting
2: yeah. yet. yeah. But uh, no uh- – No urge to play it
1: whatsoever. None at all. So let us move on to the games we played last week. And we've been extremely fortunate here in Kingston. We are able to play face-to-face again. The government of Ontario has released new guidelines, and we're following them very strictly. This actually is the first time we're recording both in the same studio before. You might notice that my voice doesn't sound tinny and stupid because of my recording equipment, and instead sounds tinny and stupid because I am tinny and stupid. That having been said, I have been doing some digital gaming, and I had done some from last week because I'm part of the Street Masters beta. They're having an open beta for, well, semi-open beta. Anyone can go and sign up, and and I, I don't think they're turning many people away. And this is an iOS or Android adaptation of the base game plus the first Redemption expansion. And... Played solo, Street Masters is an amazingly quick game. And played solo on Android or iOS, it's yet further amazingly quick. And so you get to play with these different decks and see the different card effects with a very, very high rate of turnover. And I'm very glad that they included, even just in the initial release, the Redemption expansion, because that's what lets you play as the bosses. And the amount of variety you get on a bang-for-your-buck level, the Redemption expansions, I think, have always been the very best in Street Masters, whether or not you're particularly inclined to play as a boss. And I have to say that in terms of adaptations, the Streetmaster adaptation is half amazing and half just as bad as every other digital implementation I've ever played. The way in which it's just like every other digital implementation is the information management is such that I get a very strong sense of dislocation. Because as you may recall from many of our comments about Streetmasters, there's a whole lot of different cards that have global effects or have periodic triggered effects. And in order to play really, really well and optimally, you'd best try to internalize as much of that as possible. And at its worst, it walks that knife edge between too much busy work or too much to figure out and perfectly playable. In the context of a small screen, which is how I've been playing it, those cards are just shunted off to the side. Now, it's run by the system, so the enemies just get to go and do things, and so if you're not particularly picky about what they're going to be doing in detail, you don't have to worry about it. But it is a little bit alienating to have to click three or four times to find out what the environment is going to do next turn. Can
2: I was going to say, that, that's pretty well the entirety of the game, really, is to anticipate what the enemy is going to do and sort of, you know, put in roadblocks or, you know, be ready for it or know what they're going to do. I think that's, that is Street
1: Masters, in my opinion. Well, that's definitely a strong element of it. What you do get trivially and very, very easy to manage is the cool bits of managing your character and deciding what cards to play and how to manage your tactics and how to exhaust this and then feint that and then play this so you get the amazing combo off. That part is very, very easy to use. But you're right, it buries a lot of the, the solid interest. I wouldn't recommend the Streetmasters digital implementation for someone who had never played the game, for example. But I played the base game contents a lot, so I even if I don't remember the specific details, I know the vague gist. And so I'm not completely at odds with what's going on in front of me. The part that it does really well, and I wish more digital implementations would do this, is Streetmasters looked at the, the state of play and said, all right, what decisions can we realistically automate? And these are decisions that you would actually make in a physical game of Street Masters. For example, when you are activating enemies and there are multiple available the available paths for them to walk you have to pick specifically where they end up and then the digital implementation they just said ah eh, forget it we're just gonna have them move and i applaud this endlessly because one of the things that tends to bog down electronic versions of games is every time you can play a response there's three levels of confirmation do you want to play this card no are you sure no okay now we move on an endless busy work That you wouldn't even think about doing it physically, but you have to do two or three keystrokes or or mouse clicks in a digital version. And so I applaud the fact that enemies just move, even when there are multiple versions where they can do. Salient decisions, like who are they going to target, which two equidistant fighters are they going to move towards in order to attack, that you actually tell them to do, but simple things like, are they going to end up in this hex, or the hex north of that hex? Eh, the game just decides.
2: I wish they did this in Sentinels of the Multiverse, right? Where you're yes. where you're multiple clicking through millions of things that you cannot stop from happening anyway. Absolutely. So, like you said, you know, do you want to play this card? Well, which character do you want to play it on? Are you sure you want that character? Yes, no. Are you sure you want to do it now? Do you want to, you know, it is endless clicking to get through something that you have no control over.
1: Absolutely. And I really feel that they've made a number of smart decisions on that score. And there is a very, very simple, very easy undo button ...for those cases where you accidentally make the wrong confirmation. Anyway, I'm a big fan of a lot of the elements of the adaptation. Would I prefer on a, on a desktop? Yes. Would I prefer more of the expansions available? Yes. But it's a beta, so I'm not really in a position to complain. So if you're inclined to try it out, you can just do a quick search for Blacklist Digital... ...and there's a form to fill out to apply for the beta. It's still ongoing. I, I Look, I've played... I, I've rattled off like a dozen games over the course of the past week. Because again, f- one-player Street Masters, the boss only has about 15 to 20 hit points. You've only got about 15 to 20 hit points... You know you're rolling a couple of dice every attack sooner or later someone's going to go down, and the game's going to end Is it all just single player or do they have multiplayer option? It is local single player only but you can play as multiple fighters at once. But again, I'm not particularly interested in playing playing with randos and uh, I don't really have the tech set up for playing for multiple players on a phone anyhow. So, we'll see. I don't know what features they plan on adding. I'm not in a position to know what their development looks like. I hope they're going to be involving the expansion materials hopefully at a reasonable price, not one of those things where it's like, well, if you want to add this expansion, it's 12.99 and this other expansion's another 12.99, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. No, oh, it would be better mark if they did a subscription. You get to have this expansion for only $3 a month. That's are, the best way to do it. Are you being sincere? or are <laughs> you, Okay, you're not being sincere. I really don't know. At any rate, I've been having a good time with the Street Masters beta for iOS and Android.
2: I got to play Monolith Arena f- from Michael Orez at Portal Games. And I, I beg to ask the question why they made this game when they already <laughs> have Hiroshima Hex. Because, in essence, it's exactly the same game. There's one small mechanism... That is different, and from my few games that I played, I could really do without. It just seems awfully fiddly and odd. You're talking
1: about that tower that deploys instantaneously, right? Yeah,
2: sort of like this, you know, it's sort of what base, I guess the name is based on. You create this little monolith, and it's out of your base, for those who've played Hiroshima Hex, and then during your turn sometime, if there's room, you can expand it, but only if there's room. And then if one of the units that
1: dies in it, It's it just seems fiddly to me. When reading the rules, I haven't played Monolith Arena, but i played Nerosheim Hacks a fair number of times. It struck me that it was kind of a good news, bad news situation. The good news is I think it was designed both to expand the possibility of neat little combos and tricks... And also to mitigate the effect of your three-tile hand. I really felt that sometimes in Neuroscience Hex the one area of variance, the the tile draw, could really put you behind the eight ball if you only drew units for too long or if you didn't draw any units for long enough, etc. But by the same token, this whole combo thing strikes me as potentially injecting a serious amount of combinatorial chaos. The kind of thing where if you're if you think like a chess master, you're able to appreciate that level of depth. But if you don't, it's just like, oh, okay, well suddenly I've done fifteen damage in one round. Bang.
2: Yeah, well that's what
1: that's how this
2: this version was explained to me. Well they wanted to do this new fantasy version. Neoshima Hex is a post apocalyptic sort of, you know, uh, skirmish-type game. Like, the mechanics are essentially identical, but this is all fantasy-driven, and I was told that this was to balance out the factions. They want to introduce some stuff and balance it out, and I didn't see that whatsoever. I found just quite the opposite. One of the factions has this charge ability where they get to attack, but you don't. There's very intricate parts in Nioshima Hex when attacks happen, like either the map fills up or someone plays an attack tile but this faction if they have this sort of module out they get to do a charge every turn mm. so they can pick off units every turn as long as they can charge and it just seemed game-breaking in the games that we played anyway but like I said if if a fantasy version of Newshima Hex is something that you want to try out or if any of this sounds interesting it's a very interesting tile laying game where you lay out all these units and you try to set up combos and stuff and then like i said when a battle happens then you start doing it in initiative order so highest initiative goes first and you work your way down and you try to s- destroy your enemy's base
1: and i think it is one of the best two-player games out there i was vaguely potentially curious about monolith arena because i, I enjoy nourishing hacks well enough and I'm generally intrigued to see systems iterate, but the thing that really killed any interest in trying it for me was when the expansion came out for the Academy, and the person, the unit pictured on the front was a woman in a plate mail bikini thing. And it's like, this is the Academy, and that's the unit you're going to lead with. Like, it was just, it was just a, a great way to make sure. Nope off my off my interest in playlist. Good way to kill it for sure. I got to play Tank Duel Enemy in the Crosshairs again. I played it again with my platonic life partner, Josephus. And Tank Duel remains some very interesting, upfrontish kind of fun. The weird thing is, I've now played it twice, and both times I felt that the scenarios were deeply unsatisfying, but I still had fun going through the motions. Sometimes the game systems, even though they don't provide quality decision-making, are still fun to execute. Kind of akin to, although different from, from fun paperwork and a tank Duel has something like a six or seven step attack resolution procedure, which can fail at any step and then you stop, but it's still kind of fun. You flip the card to see if you hit, you flip the card to see where you hit, you flip the card for penetration, things like that. And if you're keen on tanks and if you're keen to watch tanks blow up by inches, it's like, okay, well now your tank is on fire and your gunner is dead and your assistant driver is injured. Who's going to man the gun now, et cetera, et cetera. So all that part was enjoyable. The first scenario was problematic because there was no bias for action. There was no impetus to go anywhere. It's like, well, I could advance because I want to advance, but then I'm more deadly against you and you're more deadly against me. Why am I bothering? And we played a scenario with late model tanks, so uh, Panthers and Tigers against uh, a Stug and a later T-34. I am assured by Josephus that these words mean things. I don't know anything about military hardware of that era. And we had a scenario whereby you wanted to go grab hills at relatively close range to your enemy. But the problem is, as we encountered, and this might be an artifact of the tanks that we played, this might be an artifact of the game system itself, I'm not too sure. If one player is occupying the hills, and they manage to knock out one or both of the enemy tanks, the enemy tanks spawn, and then in order to get back in the game, they they try to advance towards the hills. And then the tank on the hill just kills them again. Because they've already got, you know, their position set. They're already got their position set, and the tanks are so deadly, and their guns are so huge, all you need is a decent hit, and it's not too hard to get one. And if you don't have to worry about managing your movement, you're just sitting there taking pot shots, it devolves. Now, that having been said, I still enjoyed playing with the system, which I think is a testament to the quality of the card play. There's lots of really good hand management, and I enjoyed it even though the game was a complete and total route. So I'm interested in pursuing. Number one, further scenarios, seeing if they give some sort of texture that undermines this dynamic. And number two, some of the more optional rules, like you can have infantry crews that are very, very simple to run. And you can have anti-tank guns, which I don't think add considerably to the scenarios. And number three, I probably would play with less sophisticated tanks, i.e. tanks with smaller bore guns that are not going to one-shot kill everything at 1400 meters, because that's, that was the range of engagement where the, the tanks kept spawning. If you need to be closer in order to do, do some real damage, you're going to see less of that, I think. And you might have to do some flanking maneuvers, etc., etc. So, tank to let in the crosshairs remains intriguing, even though I can't really recommend the system as being solid by itself. I really think that Upfront is a more solid system, even though it had tremendous creaks in it showing its age. Tank Duel is much more slick, and so it's very, very fun to manipulate. I'm just hoping that I can find a way to recommend it as a quality game. Maybe multiplayer is the way to do it. Maybe that would lead to some more interesting elements. I don't know, but I'm going to try to put it through its paces another couple of times see if these shortcomings can be addressed. And that was Tank Duel Enemy in the Crosshairs. All right, let's talk about more
2: multiplayer things or things that are interesting in multiplayer. We played a game called Flick Wars by Sean Austin, Andrew Tolson. It's out by Breaking Games and they have a flicking system where you can play up to four players and it's very interesting. It's like
1: up to six actually up to
2: six. Well, you, we played it with four. We played it with four. And so it's one of those things where you're always attacking the person to your left and the person on your right and everybody else is sort of you know, not your ally, but you don't get to attack them. You can only attack the person on your left. And it leads to very interesting situations where you can sort of realize someone's winning and you can't attack them, but you can get in their way and you can spawn stuff in their way or try to protect the other people. And 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 in other games where you try to do that, then the, that other person just turns on you anyway and takes, you know, but it doesn't happen in Flick Wars. The other interesting thing Flick Wars does in a dexterity flicking game, they put in range.
1: Which, at first, I thought was terrible, but and in the middle of the game, you thought was terrible, I know this because you mentioned it, and at the end of the game, you thought was terrible, I know this because you mentioned it, and as we were cleaning up the game, I kn- you thought was terrible, I know because you mentioned it.
2: no, at the end of the game, I thought it was unique because <laughs> it adds to very different uh- faction powers or yes. unit
1: powers, right? It leads to all these different abilities and different ways you can use the rules. And just to be clear, you can move at any range. The only question is, in order to kill something, you need to be within range at the start of your uh, start of your flick, declare it as an attack flick, and then if you touch them they die. Now, and on the face of it this this would lead to stagnation, but in point of fact, as you say, it keys off of special abilities and most units have some way to get extra flicks, and so it's about, it's about leveraging those abilities to move within range and then kill Ill, all within one activation.
2: Yeah, I love the fact that it didn't give units multiple hit points, one hit death, so it's none of this, you know, grinding silliness. It's nice, quick, fast, and I would definitely
1: suggest it to anyone to give it a try, and that is Flick Wars. I have to say that the multiplayer system worked better than I feared, but not quite as well as I hoped. I'd want to I'd see it again with the advanced rules we played with the basic rule setup. I think also letting people control terrain placement would help a little bit with things like turn order. You'd be able to defend themselves. And the way terrain is handled in Flick Wars, I have to say, is really, really cool. Because the game comes with a large neoprene mat, so you don't have to worry about your table for flicking purposes. And it comes with these wooden hemispheres. They can either go on top of the mat or underneath the mat, which leads to these sort of mountains that you can flick over. It's awesome. It's really, really cool, and it leads to these great textured bank shots where you're not really bouncing off anything. You're just using the curve of the terrain to your advantage. It's visually impressive and in practice, it's very impressive as well. I played it again solo. I tried the AI system and uh, uh, again, under the, uh, uh, under the category of minor corrections, I made a comment about how in Flick'em Up Dead of Winter, it had my favorite. AI system for uh, co-op or uh, solo dexterity games. I just wanted to mention in context, what I mean is just for resolving attacks because the stealth system in the only game that matters still team flicks remains my favorite stealth system ever in any game. Anyway, it's just when it comes time to resolve the attacks, it's just a straightforward die roll. Uh, But in the context of resolving attacks, the system in Flick'em Up Dead of Winter is amazing. In the context of the AI system for Flick Wars, it's kind of okay. Everything is based on measurements. You know, you, you pull up these, this interesting matrix of cards. You pull up two cards, you match them together and tell you who will activate, how far they're going to go, and they're just steadily marching towards your units or your base. And it's a really interesting question of risk-reward. Are these guys going to activate again? Is, can I kill this unit before they get to my base? And it it It's not bad. Look, for a solo dexterity game, it's not bad. And the multiplayer, I think, really worked well. I'd be interested in trying it in the team version. That would probably take longer. Although still, as you say, everything's pretty much only got one hit point, and units are pretty expensive, so you go to a conclusion. This isn't one of those grindy attritional things. You have currency at the start of the game but you never get any more so it's not a question of well you know i kill your unit and then you earn five more crystals and use those to deploy another unit it's one of the reasons why i wasn't a huge fan of games like nexus ops but anyway i really enjoyed it i thought it was cute we really like dexterity games your initial misgivings seemed to fade away even though your whining didn't and the unit differentiation is very nice so yeah i enjoyed flick wars as well it seemed awfully crowded with four. I'd I'd be interested to play it with six. It might be a little oh, yeah. hectic, but I wouldn't suggest it with six. Six no. would be a lot. But there are six different factions with with their own different unit abilities, and so that degree of variety is nice, even if you're never going to play it with six. True debt. Play the game of Spirit Island. This is with the most excellent tabletop simulator adaptation, which is probably one of the best mods I've ever seen. It has a lot of lovely little features to track things like elements and trigger powers. I decided to return to form and play my favorite spirit, which is Ocean's Hungry Grasp. And let me tell you, the drowning was a plenty. Spirit Island is just to emphasize. Getting really too easy, I think, for most crowds. Like, You don't really want to jack up the difficulty too high when you're playing with people who haven't played as much as you have. But by the same token, it can get uh, a little bit strange to go into a situation where it's difficulty level 4 or 5 or 6 and knowing especially if you uh, know one of the other players at the table or if you look at the combination of spirits you're playing, that the opposition just has no chance and you're going to mop the floor with them. But despite that, again, kind of sort of like Tank Tool, but in a different way, the system is so engaging and the variety of power is so compelling that you don't mind, and I certainly don't mind. I've played Spirit Island dozens and dozens of times, even on the easiest difficulty where it really is almost impossible to lose in my experience. I'm still willing to play that in any opportunity. But I would like to spend a little bit more time when possible with a little bit more challenging uh, setups where I feel like I'm I'm going to actually be threatened and feel like I'm in danger rather than just knowing that, well, I just have to wait for the power curve to work out in our favor and then we're just going to roll these people. As a power fantasy, Spirit Island is great. Honestly, it's my favorite power fantasy game, especially since you play as these primordial spirits. And in the context of hoping for games with better representation, turning the colonialist narrative on its head is always very satisfying. So Spirit Island remains a captivating delight. It's one of my favorite co-op games, and it's really, really good in its tabletop simulator implementation. I still haven't played the official Handelabra mod. Maybe that makes me a bad person. Well, that's what I was about to ask you. I thought in the last Kickstarter they promised an app. There is an app. It is in its early access. You cannot play remotely with people unless you turn on screen sharing which means you're going to have a jittery experience where everyone's fighting over the mouse. And so I've just not been interested to try it because I, I'm not interested in playing Spirit Island by myself in front of a screen to the point of buying the app. So when I want to play Spirit Island, I want to play, want to play with my friends. And so for that, I use tabletop simulator. And so that's Spirit Island. You and I
2: got to play our one of our favorite bag-building games, Hyperborea, by Andrea... Chiaravaccio and Zizzi And it's put out by... Yimana Games, and they're gonna—they have a the expansion like you've already talked about. They were already offering it. Apparently, apparently the shipping to North America is a little high, unless you know you get ten at a time. So you know, get ten of your friends together. Well, this is a different company actually. It's not the original publishers that are reprinting the expansion in English. Uh, Yamana Games has, te- has teamed up with Hack and Slash Gaming to bring us the expansion that I feel is brings a lot to the game i think i wouldn't play without it if i had the options and it just lets the game flow that much faster let's you know you build out your bag
1: much quicker and well we're talking specifically about the white and black cubes the rest of the stuff the other things i could take or leave true but also extra player powers yes so that's always good and i don't think i've ever had a bad game of hyperborea we came close this time I have to say that this was the the probably one of the least satisfying games of Hyperborea I've ever played. I still enjoyed it. Hyperborea is one of my favorites. But what happened was I was rushing the game foolishly, and you were rushing the game smartly. And so what happened was it was a very truncated game in a somewhat unsatisfying way for most people at the table, I think. And it was entirely my fault. I shouldn't have done it. And it was, I just had this, I had this exploit available, or like I can race to five ticks, Wee And at no point did I ever step back and say, "Is this a smart idea for you to race to five ticks, Mark?" Well, that's the thing. I just sort of looked at it.
2: I wasn't planning on 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 finishing the game that that quickly, right? But that you, no, you did what you were supposed you had, to do. Yeah, you had did one of you had got one of the goals, and the next goal finishes the game, and it's just like I look around the table, no one can attack, and I have I have a good
1: positioning yep. so i might as well oh absolutely you, can, you, did the, you did the right thing i just facilitated you in a way that i really ought not to have And that is hyperborea check it out play it it is amazing i get to play asgard's chosen we reviewed asgard's chosen not too long ago asgard's chosen is one of my favorite kind of sort of weird and underappreciated below the radar games it was put up by mayfair in 2013 And it is one of my favorite Norse mythology games, and you get to play with all the Norse gods. I was just perusing some of the artwork again while playing. I have to say that its depiction of Loki in Asgard's Chosen has got to be one of the most visually compelling depictions of Loki in board gaming I've ever seen. And I really just like looking at your hand trying to figure out what victory conditions you can achieve turn on turn, all the while being threatened by a whole bunch of people trying to do the same Making strategic retreats, making, giving up your territory at the right time. I really, really enjoy Asgard's Chosen. Unfortunately, I kind of, again, this is kind of a combination of the factors that I talked about in Spirit Island and the factors in Hyperborea. I don't know that I'm in a position to really show the game off to its best advantage because we played the quote unquote normal five god game. You can play to, to some level of, of god appeasement and in a five-god game, I was able to end the game just as some of the other new players were just getting going. Because, And this isn't because I'm some sort of master at the game. It's just because I played a, about a dozen times. And there's a lot in Asgard's Chosen that's admittedly pretty weird. It's a very strange deck builder. It's got some weird terminology going on. Triggering the powers is a little bit counterintuitive. The color matching isn't great, which doesn't help. And so I was just happily going along doing my thing, and, and I, I, I looked over and... I should have realized that the other, some of the other players were just starting to figure out how any, all of this worked. And if you want to play Asgard's Chosen again, I'm not saying you should pull your punches, but maybe I should have kept that in mind a little bit more while it's, playing.
2: It's definitely the point I was going to make. It has a very, it has a lot of very unique game mechanics that aren't used. Not only are they not used in other games, but there's similar mechanics that they, you know, turn on their head and, and do completely different. Exactly. So it, it's not hard to teach, but it's hard for people to you know, get familiar with it and, and and visualize exactly what's going on. And like you said, it's not until, like, halfway through the game where they realize what's going on, and then sometimes that, that could be the end. Well, then I guess it wouldn't be the middle.
1: <laughs> <laughs> middle for them and for the person that knows what they're doing.
2: How's that, that?
1: that having been said, I still had a very, very good time with Asgard's Chosen. I'm going to continue to bring it out and try to introduce it to as many people as possible. And that was Asgard's Chosen. I got to play a game called Fuji Kuro. It's put out by Game Brewer and it's
2: designed by Jerome Demir. I think it's Jerome Demire. There you go. I could be wrong. And I did a fantastic unboxing of it. So if you haven't checked it out, check out Facebook. There's another unboxing up there. I'm sure there'll be another one up there tomorrow. Now, Canada Post willing. Canada Post willing. All right. So Mark will fight me on this, but I don't care. Very much like, <laughs> very much like Mage Knight. Why oh, do I? Boy. Why do I say this? Not only are you exploring hexes like an actual just like a mage knight you're doing explore actions but the hexes are exactly the same you're playing heroic characters that you're building up over and over again as you over a map that you cannot see as you flip over the hexes they get more and more powerful as you move out just like a mage knight and you populate the hexes just like you do in mage knight so that yeah just like you do in mage knight yeah yeah, you populate the hexes when, when you flip them over. You put your tokens and <laughs> just all Just like different... you do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's exactly the same. Yeah. I'm just saying, all of these things and the feeling, the overall feeling of... of Keep going, ...of, Walker. of working Move on up this character makes me feel like it's a little bit like Mage Knight. It has none of the deck building, none of the other stuff, but just this overall arc of you're playing this super powerful character that gets you know, more and more powerful while you know exploring out into... Unknown Lands and and Fighting Dragons gives me the same feel.
1: It was fine. I mean, look, here's the thing. One of the things that I really don't like about Explory-type games, because this is very much in the same vein as Explory-type games, right? If you're thinking of plumping down $17 trillion for the latest Nemesis release, honestly, I think Fujikoro is a much, much better choice because... At the end of the day, they're still about wandering around, flipping over tiles, trying to get where you need to go, and encountering obstacles and defeating them in order to get in order to succeed at your victory conditions. Fujikoro dispenses with a lot of the nonsense. However, it, in terms of player interaction, it's not a, a whole lot better. The way that it works is, if you want to fight a dragon, anybody that is neighboring that tile can quote-unquote join in. But the way initiative works, if I have a very, very high initiative, and I'm going to go one-shot a dragon... Everyone else who's hovering around will be like, oh, yeah, 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 me too. I'm totally going to back you up. And then you're left in this awful sort of situation where the only way to prevent other people from capitalizing off of your work is by deliberately throwing the fight and just taking one on the chin, which doesn't seem particularly advantageous. Now, the other way you can deal with it is not to fight dragons and just aggressively predate on all the other characters and keep hitting them over and over and over again until they either leave or you feel inclined to stop. That isn't uh, at that point you're you're kind of playing a take that game. Honestly, it was, but it was okay. I mean, other than the the, the weird degeneracies that you often had with respect to initiative and other people quote unquote joining in on the, on the the dragons, there was this I think overblown, overemphasized question of crafting because you're building shoes, a weapon, and a hat over the course of the game out of a variety of materials, and all that part's fine and 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 kind of neat. But there's this notion of blueprints, and so your weapon has to be in a very, very specific shape. But whenever you craft things, the all the opportunities where you might have to build one of these things, you can rearrange your cubes as you see fit, so the shapes are almost entirely irrelevant. So it just seems like a whole bunch of uh, much ado about nothing with respect to the actual crafting elements in, in that sense. Did you find that aspect satisfying? I did. I did. Okay. It, just, it just harkens
2: back because... I had a little bit of reimagining when I did the little micro badge for for our, for our guild, you know, where you have this little square and you have only like sixteen <laughs> squares to work with, and that it also because it all goes back to this old game. Like I couldn't remember what it was, but it's dating myself. It was on a floppy disk. Oh yeah, and you'd put it in. It was like they're called Sierra three thousand or Circa three thousand, and they had put everything in there for you. Right, you could just you could tell it what stats you wanted to use. Like, do you want you know strength? You know, uh charisma, uh, poison, weapons. You know, you, like you just hit all the toggles for the unit, right? Do you want it, to, you know, be you know strong in fire, you know, weak in poison, do poison attacks? You know, thousands of toggles, and then you had your little square where you you know, had 16 pixels to create what this, you know, top-down or side view, how you would want this, you know, thing to make. And, you know, we'd spend hours making, you know, Star Wars units or 40K units and and doing these things. So it it sort of, you know, harkens back to having this small little square to work with, with all these little pixel cubes and trying to make, you know, the most creative, interesting, you know, weapon out of it. I, I loved it. And it's not only that, but it has multiple implications the length of the weapon is what your initiative is going to be it seems minor but i think it's it's pretty interesting and not only that the cubes are the dice you're going to roll so if you use three wooden blocks and you know eight metal blocks then you're going to be rolling you know three wooden dice and eight metal dice and in.
1: Right, but I, all of that could have just as easily been implemented by having everything in a pile. You're just accumulating yeah, all these resources. But does it doesn't look as cool. It, sure, it doesn't look as cool. Honestly, my, my biggest objection to Fujikoro was that at the end of the day, it doesn't overcome the central problem that almost all of these vaguely exploring type of games do. You're flipping over tiles, and sometimes they're the tiles you need, and sometimes they're not the tiles you need. And honestly, in the early games, some people just got showered with riches. There are very, very important resources, uh, namely monks and scrolls. If you find monks and scrolls in the early Game and other people don't. Well, congratulations, you have your monks and scrolls, and nobody else does. I was thinking about this argument earlier today, but I think if you don't get that, then what you're getting is the weaker dragons, so you're getting the victory points.
2: Whereas the other how sides are aren't. you
1: killing them if you're not getting the other things you want in the <sighs> early game? Maybe. In the early game, I, I look, I was lucky because I had the character that in the early game can kill things. Everyone else was desperately running around with a sharpened stick, encountering minor dragons, and the only way they were able to kill dragons was by piggybacking off of my success. And if they encountered a dragon by themselves, they just had to leave. And other people were desperate to get going, whereas I already started with the ability to kill things. So I was just wandering around, whacking things upside the head. It's so what you do in Fujikoro. <laughs> is wander around. This the things full
2: head. full review. You lower yourself down into Mount Fuji on ropes, and there's this all these shrines and stuff like inside the volcano of of Mount Fuji, and you're and you're running around trying to get you know trying to preserve history. You're trying to get all these scrolls, and and then as soon as a player hits thirty victory points, then it, it begins the end timer, and you have eight more turns to get out. And you sort of have to, you know, weigh this against, uh, scoring more victory points. Because when you, when you get out before the timer's up, you can spend your turn cashing in these monks or cashing in these magical weapons for huge amounts of points. I thought that trade-off was kind of interesting. Even though you and I got out way, way too early and, and we ended up not being able to do anything on some of the last turns, I still think that sort of
1: figuring out when to leave is, is semi interesting. Yeah, that part's fine. We should stress that we're talking about the competitive version of the game. Fujikora is one of the games where you can play it solo or cooperative or competitive, and there's a whole bunch of different scenarios. But at the end of the day, it's mostly the same. Build stuff and kill some dragons. Now that's my other comparison to, to Mage Knight too, by the way. Uh, because the is very similar. You know,
2: all the rules, and then at the back there's cooperative and competitive scenarios and different ways to set it up. And it's just, you know, it's very similar. Sure. <laughs>
1: They're effectively the same game, sure. It's just like Splendor, Mark. And that was Fujikoro. Specifically, you have Fujikoro Deluxe. Fujikoro Deluxe. The non-deluxe version has been available for some time. Honestly, they're both reasonably pretty. The deluxe elements are nice, but I don't think they're necessary. The base game has standees instead of minis. You know, standard sort of non-deluxe versions. And those are the games we played last week. On to the news and why it doesn't matter. First of all, I think we can both agree that Biblios is a terrible
2: game. <laughs> That being said, they are coming out with uh, Biblio's Quill and Parchment, which is a Biblio's roll and write game.
1: Oh, boy. Oh, boy. A genre I can't stand in a game that I think is mediocre. There you go. Excitement for all. Yeah. Yeah. Slightly more optimistic news, there is going to be another game in the Sentinels of the Multiverse universe, specifically Freedom 5. Now, one of the reasons why I'm really excited about this is because it's another Sentinels product, and we really like the universe. So far, the only non-Sentinels of the Multiverse game, specifically Sentinels Tactics, was (coughs) best forgotten, but... This has some very interesting people involved. Number one, it has Steven Gibson doing the art direction and design. And Steven Gibson is my favorite board game artist. He was responsible for Grimslingers. He did some work on Champions of Hara. He's been doing a lot of work lately, and his art and graphic design is, I think, second to none in the industry. It's also being worked on by the Sadler brothers, Adam and Brady Sadler of Blacklist Games, who do Street Masters, and I'm a big fan of their work as well. I'm I'm excited because it's based off of a Pandemic. I mean, I mean, yeah. Defenders of the Realm. You see I mean. that, that? Sorry, that,
2: Defenders of the Realm. That's
1: where I'm not excited because. Defenders of the Realm took Pandemic and said, you know what this needs? It needs dice for no earthly reason. And it was just, it felt like a sloppy, unfinished, underbaked riff on Pandemic, as far as I was concerned. Some people really like it, what have you. But look, I trust. That the Sadler Brothers can, like, co-op games are their jam. That is what they do. They're very, very good at it. And I have, I'm optimistic that they'll be able to wrestle it into something decent. I'm sure it's going to look fantastic, and it's going to be in a universe that I like. So it's got a lot of things going for it. I'm looking forward to seeing what Freedom 5 yeah, is going Yeah, it's going gonna to have like. to be
2: something fairly drastic, not for us to auto-pledge on this
1: one. Yep. I talked about
2: uh, Monumental last week, and they were coming out with their expansion, African Empires... Like I said, now it is up on Kickstarter, and if you want the all-in deal, it is only $369. How could you afford not to? Exactly. I do want to put a caveat on it, though. It is put out by Funforge. Apparently, they have a history, so pledge at your own risk. Take a look into the history of Funforge, and that is Monumental African Empires. You want to be a little more vague
1: or ominous about that? Yes, I do. Okay. No, I'm just saying they have fulfillment issues. That's all. Oh, sure. In other words, they run Kickstarters. Exactly. Fair enough. I have good news. By the time you hear this, it'll probably be too late to vote, but the Charles S. Roberts Awards are coming back from the dead. They haven't run for well over five years. These are the Wargaming Awards that are named after the founder of Avalon Hill back in 1975. And they were opening up the awards for the first time ever. You could vote uh, for the first time in a long time. You could vote on the website. You could vote by email. You could vote by snail mail, Walker, because these are Wargamers, and they roll deep. And I look forward to seeing what the results are because, as I say, the voting period ends by the, uh, by the time you hear this. But I'm looking forward to Wingspan getting more awards. I was going to say, it'll be Wingspan. Yeah, I mean, look, I can't even... Obviously, that's the joke that everyone has been making. But I would imagine that this is going to self-select for a different crowd. Who knows? Who knows? And lastly,
2: for me, there's a game that seems interesting to me because I love World War II. It's called Domination by Wei Cheng Chen, Chen uh, and Next Game because five other games called domination is not enough so <laughs> we need a sixth one but anyway this is sort of a card game with a board and you're abstractly moving uh, tanks and planes along this path and playing these cards it looks very interesting i'm i'm looking forward to reading the rule book for this one for sure domination and that's the news and why it doesn't matter Now, on to the topic of the week, which is multiple paths to victory. I think what we mean by this is board games that have multiple ways to win, not just a single victory point track or only one way to get victory points. Like, I think we can say the best game of all time, Tigers and Euphrates, is a one-way to victory point
1: type game. I'm not sure. So, in terms of defining what the term can mean... There's a variety of different senses in which people use, describe things as multiple paths to victory, and I think we do the same thing. In the sense of, there are lots of different kinds of things that score points. Some people talk about multiple paths to victory. Sometimes there's only one kind of thing that scores points, but there's a lot of different ways to get to it. That to me is the, the, the big, The the two big categories, and into that there are lots of different subcategories. In the context of Tigers and Euphrates, I would probably put it in the latter category. There's there's one kind of point, and there's only one thing that you're doing to get point. There's only one kind of thing to score, namely these victory point cubes. But the way that you get to them can be different. You can start conflicts. You can just place tiles. You can do monuments. And this is true. and, And and to my mind. I have an obvious preference, and my strong preference, and this is independently of Tigers and Euphrates, I didn't even consider Tigers and Euphrates in this context, my strong preference is for the latter category. I've talked a lot recently, especially in the context of more complex, intricate games, where I like it when the scoring is focused. That is how I've described it a lot of times. I've, I've talked about this in the context of Cerebria, especially when comparing it to a lot of other sort of medium-heavy uh, Euro-ish or non-Euro games of late. Uh, certainly when contrasting it to games like Vitalis Certa games, or even lighter stuff like uh, Steffenfeld games. Steffenfeld is infamous for this, right? This is the distinction of the infamous point salad, where pretty much everything you do will get you points, and there's a bunch of different scoring mechanisms. There's set collection, there's triangular scoring, there's grid scoring over here, and you get these t- blah, 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 blah. Cerebria on the other hand, despite the fact that it has a very, very dense set of rules, you win by area majority contests. That is what scores you points. Now, this is a bit of an oversimplification, but by and large, that's what's going on. The multiple paths to victory in a game like Cerebria come in the sense that there are lots of different ways to influence the area majority contests. And that's the kind of multiple paths that I like. Not the multiple paths where you can go and get lots of different kinds of things. So again, the Tigers and Euphrates mold, where I know I need to break up this kingdom or I need to assault this person's scoring status or I need to rebuild my parlous parlously low green score. I have a lot of different tactical and strategic tools that I can employ to get there even though there's just this one thing. Talk about why
2: this method works so well. Not your particular method. Not not the Yeah, yeah. I'm just mean like if it is your first game first time you're playing this game when there's multiple paths you can just focus on one of them and you won't do as well as some people but it'll let you you know learn the game and it'll let you do your little thing so you get to focus on this one area of victory so that's sometimes happening if it's an interactive game like where it's very aggressive against the other players and they shut you out of certain avenues of victory then there's other ones that you can pursue you're not you're not totally out of the game because there's these multiple paths and you're always good
1: this is one of the ways in which I think the so-called sandbox games often fail. This is what they often promise, right? Because a sandbox game is typically premised on this notion of there are lots of different things you can do. You can go explore these, this, this, this big decision space and go do lots of different things. And they often end up very disappointing. We were very disappointed by Western Legends. I was very disappointed by Zaya Legends of the Drift System. At the end of the day, they, they, they just seem to encourage you to just get an engine and pop that en- that engine. You don't really get, to- get a sense of scope, and the player interaction often seems forced. Which is why, and, and I, I came to the realization after playing a, uh, a number of times, my favorite sandbox game is A Feast for Odin. It's not tra- traditionally identified as such, But there are lots of different things that you can go and explore, and it's the closest thing to an almost maybe but not quite point salad game that I really, really enjoy because there's just this large space to explore and lots of different ways to go and achieve your goals. Now, if you wanted to be a little bit more charitable, you could say that, put it try to shove it under my second category and say at the end of the day, mostly what you're trying to do in A Feast for Odin is fill grids, and there's lots of different ways to fill grids, but I I don't know that that's entirely accurate. I just really enjoy when you can have lots of different little experiences in a game without this sense of the scoring system fighting you or being too complicated. Well, that sort of
2: leads into one of these points where sometimes it's a good chance – sometimes it's a chance to bring the theme alive. So when you have all these different paths to victory, it sort of helps the designer bring in the theme that they're going for, Like Sort of, you know, brings you into that world with all these different experiences,
1: Absolutely, and I'm still waiting for a kind of sandboxy exploration type game that really makes me feel like I'm doing this. Now, I've talked about how there are games where I get to explore a world and I feel like I'm exploring it like Grimslingers or like Legacy of Dragonhold, but they're not really what we're talking about here. Those are more narrative experiences. When it comes to a more competitive, more gamey type of environment, I have yet to feel that kind of sense of exploration or that sense of discovery quite like the way I've seen it in A Feast for Odin, just being able to find new stuff. Uh, repeat With repeated plays, it makes each game different, right? When you have different paths
2: to victory, sometimes they're even like drawn off a deck, so there could be all sorts of different ones, or even if there's just a bunch in the game that are the same every game, but you can, you know, sort of decide which ones to go for differently, right? So it makes repeated plays different.
1: Yeah, as a venue towards asymmetry, I think multiple paths to victory are often great. So the, the poster child of this in the past few years is definitely Root, because... There are so many different ways to approach victory based on the factions that you have. Now, given a certain faction, there's not this tremendous free-form ability to get points in lots and lots and lots of different ways, usually if there's only a couple. But because there are so many factions involved and you have to know how to mess with all the different factions, it comes together in a, in a much more focused experience because of, again something I'll be harping on a lot, a more focused scoring system, whereby the scoring is transparent and obvious. Deck builders are often really good at this. Again, multiple paths to victory leading to lots of different uh, gameplay options. This is true whether it's a point-based deck builder, like uh, Dominion or the Realms games or Fards of Infinity. Uh, sorry, Shards of Infinity. That, that, that actually came out naturally. Or even if it's not a point-based game, like, like uh, Xenoshift, for example you can try different combos and different kind of soldier setups. This is one of the reasons why actually parenthetically I'm not a huge fan of Shadow Rift because having discovered the way to win Shadow Rift, every play kind of sort of feels like the same and so yeah, I have a thing at the
2: end here about about card games like cards with multi-use cards like not only do they help you not, not only do they help you build your engine but they will help you go towards your goal. Games like uh, it's a wonderful world like, even though, you know, this card's not helping you get your points, it's, you know, improving your engine or whatever. Or Lagrange, where you're going through cards and you're adding them to different parts. Uh, Concordia, not so much, but, you know, every card leads to more victory points, but it also improves your engine and wingspan. Um,
1: <laughs> Race for the Galaxy. Race for the Galaxy. Same idea. I really like it when... As you say, and this is this is harkening back to Asgard's Chosen, why I love it so much. The cards are multi-use in a way that really pays off in the strategic decision-making. I look at my hand of cards and I say, okay, which gods can I appease this round? What can I plausibly do with these other cards to satisfy these specific victory conditions? And in Asgard's Chosen, it's the only... It, it, it I think, is actually the, the game... That- mm. Best that is that best exemplifies the first category done right. Lots of different things will get you points because all the gods, all of the ten gods, have a different victory condition attached to them. But it comes together in a clean way. Kind of like Concordia. The scoring in Concordia is a little bit all, all over the place. But you don't have to math it out every time because it's just you're buying these cards that add to your deck. And as you say, they, they dovetails with your engine building. And so it, it ends up working pretty well.
2: The other thing that's good about it is like games like Blood Rage where you get combos in the cards, right? You're drafting these cards and you can build up combos. It leads to very interesting strat conversations, right? Where you get online and you can talk about, you know, how different combos work and how different gameplays go and it leads to very interesting stories. Like uh, Gaia Project has the same sort of thing and lots of games have very conversations that are very interesting on, on different strategies.
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit about Gaia Project, but again, this is kind of just a more of a function of our disagreement about the game. I, I often feel in Gaia Project it's kind of like what Root does well, Gaia Project doesn't quite pull it off in the same way. When I get a new faction in Gaia Project or Terra Mystica, I feel like my special power is telling me how to play the game. And so, yes, in the sense from a meta level, there are multiple paths to victory in that there are multiple factions. But once I get the faction, I'm pretty much set.
2: All right, now on to like a bad point. So sometimes there's false
1: paths, like Kugong, where Jade is a lie. I have that written down here. Not only is it a lie... It is the kind of additional path where someone else is off doing their own thing, and it's just radically different and doesn't really intersect with everybody else. That's right, where well, the different conditions are not balanced,
2: and some are more powerful. Mm. This usually falls into, like, what I found with this is that it usually falls into groupthink with the designer, and mm. they're a playtesting group where they play the game a certain way, or they've played the game so many times, they're now sort of, it's morphed into a certain way of playing and so some victory conditions are just more pronounced in games that they played. And when it's brought out to people who haven't played the game before or play games differently, then, you know, all of these different things fall to the wayside and and the balance isn't
1: there. Or even if the game is perfectly balanced but or reasonably well balanced, perfectly balanced yeah. is probably impossible. But for your play group, it will lead to degeneracies. In that case, it doesn't really matter that given a new set of friends, you could play the game, quote unquote, as intended. Just sometimes it doesn't work. And it's a shame when games are fragile in that way. It's it's unfortunate. All right. So now I
2: just have a bunch of examples of different multiple paths to victory. So random game end goals. So this is games that where you draw all these different cards or, or chits and they're going to change the end, just the end goals. Like there's games where the the randomness is throughout the game where, you know, they, you draw a whole bunch of cards and during the game you're, obtain these victories, but these are games where it's the very end goals. Wingspan has end of game goals. Gaia Project, there's like two end of game goals in Gugong. Same sort of thing. They have uh, end game scoring tiles that come up at the you know beginning where you can put your guys on and, you, and and make sure you get those points.
1: Well, here I think there's a distinction that we can draw, and I think these are both legitimate in- interpretations of multiple paths to victory. But to my mind, if a game has variable setup. But once this game has been set up and once you've seen these variable end goals, that's not really the same kind of flexibility of multiple paths to victory. Yes, in, in a meta sense, there are multiple ways to win the game. But for a given game state, for a given session of the game, there aren't multiple ways to win. There's just that specific one, potentially. I think more in terms of games where you can be flexible, change priorities in the middle of a game. And so the game system itself leads to that kind of those kinds of trade-offs. Again, like I've been talking about Asgard's Chosen, like for Race for the Galaxy where you have to adapt to the cards that are coming in. And so it's less a function of just like now in Race for Galaxy, it's not so much the goals that get in the that get set out of the initial flop, but more about how you react to the cards coming in and what kind of engine you decide to build. All right, So
2: here's some games that fall in the other category where The randomness comes during the game. So, Marco Polo, right? You're, you're seeding the whole board differently every, every turn, every, sorry, every game. So, the different ways to get victory points is completely changed every game. Blood Rage, what cards you happen to get in current drafting rounds or that are even in that particular game because, you know, they didn't get into the draft. And Castles of Burgundy, the same thing. You know, different tiles are going to come up. Some won't come up at all or where they're available. Is always completely different.
1: It's interesting. Why are you putting Voyages of Marco Polo in in with Blood Rage? Because Voyages of Marco Polo, for me, is an example of the kind of thing that we see in Gaia Project or in Wingspan, where there is an initial setup, and that initial setup will be variable. But once that happens, you're off and, and you pursue a plan. Now, I'm not saying it's all scripted at that point. That's not what I'm saying. But it's certainly – on a spectrum more scripted than something like Blood Rage, where you can't plan in Era One to say, "Well, in Era Three, I'm going to draft this card and that's my strategy." You have to be flexible based on what cards come in, and you have to exploit the multiple paths to victory di- dynamically. So, why why do you? Well, just because it's a little in Marco
2: Polo, you do have to be a little bit flexible as well, just depending on like how you get your income and how how quickly you get the bonuses. You know, you do sort of figure out what path you're going to take along and what how you're going to get your income, but that could change. Someone could get in front of you, or someone could block. You or you know things won't work out just the way you want it to, and you have to like change your sort of strategy in the middle of the game. Fair enough. There are some games where you just need a spreadsheet at the end of the game Ugh. to score it. I'm talking about games that come with those giant score pads, like Feast for Odin or Agricola or Caverna, where there's so many different point salady ways to get points.
1: It's ridiculous. Feast for Odin, I think, is is a magnitude different from, say, Agricola and Caverna. Caverna, I mean, these are all games that I score in my head anyway, but in the context of Agricola, there, it's always these fixed categories, right? You know you're going to score for every category of animal, and you're going to score for these certain farm categories, whereas a Feast for Odin, it's like, are you going to pursue colonies at all? Are you going to get boats at all? Are you going to do any of these things at all? It, it just seems like an additional uh, level there and whether or not you want to call it point salad which i think is necessarily pejorative i think is largely a function of how well you think the scoring system works and as i say i'm positively inclined towards it so i probably wouldn't call it that but no, that's, that, that's begging the question i'm just playing the advocate yeah know? yeah reasonable so
2: on the same like on the other side of that is it allows the player to do what's fun right or, you know, go right into the thematic part of the game. Like when you're playing Agricola, you can just, you know, say, well, I don't care about that part of the scoring. I'm going to have a really cool garden or I'm going to have hmm. a really cool, in the case of Caverna, I'm going to have fantastic animals all over the place. I'm going to have a cool titling system. Great Western Trail is the same sort of thing. You can just say, well, I'm going to make sure I have the best herd or I'm going to have, you know, go be the train king or, you know, these games were. Please, King Train. King Train, sorry. Where you have so many different. All hail King Train. All hail King Train. Ways to win, then you can just you know focus on the one that
1: makes you you know have the most fun in the game. I often find this works really well when you have different. Sometimes they're different scoring systems, and sometimes they're different scoring conditions. That really are tightly integrated and so they really make you feel like all the mechanisms are working together in a really really cool way. Two games that that spring to mind in this category are Senji and Successors 3rd Edition. In Senji the diplomacy aspect feeds into the military aspect which feeds into the economic aspect and so there are lots of different ways to score points so it's not quite as focused as some of those other games and a lot of people do have difficulty internalizing a lot of the scoring conditions but I'm willing to forgive it and it's one of the reasons why it's one of my favorite games is because of how tightly integrated all these different aspects are, and it really elevates, I think, the troops-on-a-map genre as a consequence, and I, I really like diplomacy games, and it really does the, the diplomacy really well. Successors 3rd Edition completely blows open the notion of what a multiplayer conflict game can look like by virtue of its twin scoring conditions. You get victory points for controlling territory, and you have legitimacy points for by accumulating legitimacy to become the heir of Alexander in the aftermath of his death. And sometimes the two work together, sometimes they work at cross-purposes. And for a game of its complexity, the actual scoring is relatively straightforward, but how you have to juggle those two victory conditions, and again, have to pivot on a moment's notice, realizing, okay, a legitimacy victory ain't going to cut it for me anymore, I now have to go get Alex's heir, or something. And that kind of flexibility, those kinds of mid-game turns, that's really when I think multiple paths to victory is at its best. When a scoring system is such that you're able to really leverage dynamic opportunities for clever play and rebounding and strategic gambits and all these kinds of things, that I think is really when the scoring systems are the kinds of things that I really appreciate. Now, don't get me wrong. There are lots of Knitsy games where the scoring systems are clever. Like Samurai, for example, the scoring system in Samurai, I think it's really, really cool and really, really clever. But I don't think it really does these kinds of things that I'm talking about because it's still at the end of the game. It's uh, At the end of the day, it's about placing tiles and grabbing these things. And so it's a marvelous game. I love Samurai. I love Through the Desert. It, all of these things are fabulous. But the the scoring systems involved don't really leverage those kinds of elements that I feel in Senji and Successors 3rd Edition at the end of the day, these multiple paths of victories always leads to, you know, are the victory points going
2: to be hidden? Are they not going to be hidden information? And, you know, is this going to lead to overthink? And anyway, this is what all... And I went down like the top, you know, 50 games on on the BGG rating list and and they're really all over the place for these things. And a lot of them are like story driven games. And so it, it really doesn't, it doesn't look as though it makes a difference.
1: Well, that's an awfully depressing way to end a discussion. I know, right? Nothing matters, Walker. Nothing matters. Cuz oh. nothing really matters. <laughs> well again, you you very clearly value just as I do these kinds of games of, of tactical and strategic flexibility. Because I think one of, you know, swag favorite, of Teutonica, although it doesn't really do anything particularly clever with its scoring mechanism, does precisely reward this kind of flexibility. You know, I'm going to, I've decided I'd like to go pump up this track. Oh, someone's taking a city. That means that every time I pump it up, they get a whole bunch of points. Well, better change gears. Yeah. And so. Well, I'm not going to do that because I'm not going to help him because he was mean to me. Exactly. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter, at thegamesyoulike. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again very much for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Biggin. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong.
0: At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place.